Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Optus Sport Football Podcast, where today I'm joined, as always, by Phil Kittramelides and by Nick Miller from The Athletic. We look back on a barnstormer at the bridge. Ask who is the best place to mount a title challenge to Manchester City and is Xavi's job in danger at Barcelona? I'm Mark Schwarzer and we'll be discussing all that and more on the Optus Sport Football Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Optus Sport Football Podcast. I'm joined as always by Phil Kittremelis and this week it's Nick Miller from The Athletic. Welcome guys. Hello. Hello Schwarzer. Well, I mean, what a weekend of football. I mean, we have to start with Chelsea against Manchester City. Actually, I was there at the stadium and I was doing some commentary and wow, what a game. I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to be at the Tottenham against Chelsea game. And for other reasons, of course, that turned out to be an epic encounter. But this one, in terms of football, has got to be up there, Nick, with one of the greatest Premier League games, right? Yeah, I mean, as you say, certainly one of the, one of the best Chelsea games I've watched this week. Um, just, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, I I kind of almost sort of preferred the the Spurs game because of the sort of the the kind of more less reconstru- less constructed chaos. Um, this was obviously kind of incredibly exciting. Um, I think it's the first time there have been four equalizers in a game for a Premier League game for a long time. Just the way it went, kind of back and forth and then you know you there's there's obviously Rodri scored that late goal and it was it's City so you think well that's that then um but I, I I'm I don't know what this says about me or something in my kind of personality but a game when there's a game as mad as that I I can watch a 2-1 and be perfectly satisfied by the end and go yep yeah, that was a good game of football and I'm happy with the way I've spent my afternoon but when it's as mad as that I want more I, I when the, the final whistle went, it's like eight goals, and I was thinking, no, I feel what? Why do I, why do I feel slightly short short changed here? But which is obviously completely ludicrous. But yeah, what a what an incredible game, Mark. You were there and you were commentating. How do you commentate on a game like that? Oh, it is honestly. Fortunately enough, I was there with John Murray, who's an absolute legendary commentator, and he makes the job really really easy from my perspective. Um, love working with him, and it's just like. I don't know, you just got to go with the flow and you basically just let out whatever <laughs> sense of emotion that you're actually feeling at that moment in time. Just imagine you're sitting at home watching it and you're, you're talking to your mate on a, on, a, on a phone call that he's not got the coverage, but you're watching it. You got to try and explain to him just what is going on in front of you. And it's crazy. And I think we probably repeated ourselves many, many times. Um, and half the time it was difficult to explain because you're trying to, you're trying to, register in your own head what what's just actually happening what what's going on in front of you um so yeah it's a, it's a challenging one but then in other terms because there's so much going on it flows and it's really natural so i mean it, it, there's two sides to it i mean look give me that game any day of the week i'm a bit nick i'm a bit when you talked about there like you felt short change at the end i was a bit like when when city hit the lead with what four or five minutes to go rodri's goal 
I was actually disappointed because it was kind of a crappy goal to to hit the lead with such an epic encounter. And I thought, oh, don't let Chelsea lose this game. Not because of my connections, but more so because of the game itself. And I thought, the game doesn't deserve to be won by a goal like that. If it's going to be won, it has to be won by an, an, an epic goal, right? But then, obviously, the way that it finished dramatically, Cole Palmer scoring against his old team. The, I mean, he's so young, and he's taken on that responsibility. Um, it just... Yeah, it was the icing on the cake. Yeah, I, I suppose that that might be the the argument to say that it it shouldn't be like in the absolute classics of Premier League games because all of, none of the goals were kind of particularly great individual like goals. There was obviously there was two penalties. Um, there were a couple of them for, were from mistakes, as you say. What the Rodri's goal was from a deflection. Uh, Erling Haaland's second goal was uh, what part of his body actually scored that with, I'm not sure. Kind of possibly his buttocks, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, it, I, I agree. It, it would have been a, a bit of a pity for, for such a, a sort of extraordinary game to be kind of decided by such a such a big deflection. I thought it was a really high quality game, actually. Like there were a few mistakes for a couple of the goals. The second goal that um, uh, Chelsea scored and, and Guardiola's made, made a bit of a mistake there. But I thought it was actually noticeable that there weren't that many mistakes in the game. Uh, these eight goals didn't come from sort of really egregious, um, big mistakes for defences all over the shop. It was a really high quality game. Um, both sides just genuinely going for it, not sort of sitting back. And once they got in the lead, trying to see it out, there was there was none of that. And they could have done that at various moments in the game and, and nobody decided to do it. Obviously, I didn't watch this game live because I was watching the Seville Derby live. We can come on to that a little bit later on uh, in the show. So I was watching it, actually watched it this morning uh, on demand. And I know that a lot of Optusport viewers won't have watched this <laughs> at the time, but they would have watched it uh, later. So I knew what the score was. But it didn't detract at all from my enjoyment of the game, even though I knew how it was going. It was so intense. It was such a, like I say, a high quality game that as a spectacle, it was fantastic to watch, even though I knew what the score was. I knew what the outcome was and I was still sort of on, on tenderhooks to, to see how it panned out. And I was a bit like you, Nick, at the end. I was like, we want more. There were eight <laughs> minutes of injury time. Was it enough? Was it enough? Oh, I I should just say that I'm not. I just make clear that I sound really miserable by saying, "Oh, the goals are a bit rubbish," and I was feel shortchanged. No, it was a <laughs> phenomenal game of football, and I enjoyed it enormously. Hooting and hollering in the living room, and my wife thought was something sort of <laughs> weird was happening in the other room. So, yeah, just to clarify, it was great. I enjoyed it. I'm not complaining. I mean, the scene was set. I mean, it's off the back of Chelsea's remarkable win away at Spurs, one way or the other. I mean. We- against nine men expecting to win, but they, you know, they were on the up. Jackson scored a hat-trick, but City were going to Chelsea trying to win five games in a row against Chelsea by one goal. And when they also took the lead 1-0, they just thought, oh no, it can't be. This is not going to happen, right? But I agree. That, I mean, I think overall the quality of the game was outstanding. I thought Chelsea obviously played a massive part because I, I thought before the game it was going to be one-sided. I thought City would win this game. I thought, yeah, Chelsea would give it a go, but just wouldn't have the, the quality and certainly not the um, the form to back it. Um, but they, they went for it. I mean, I thought Raheem Sterling was one of his, again, one of his better performances, one of his best performances in a, in a Chelsea shirt. Cole Palmer was outstanding against his old club uh, for such a young guy who's probably, he's been one of the shining lights in the Chelsea side all season anyway. Um, I thought the 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 intricate uh, sort of triangles, first time passing, 
high intensity closing down. That's what I think Chelsea did very, very well. And that's also why I think also Chelsea disrupted Man City so much. Man City are not used to at that high intensity for such prolonged periods of time being under so much pressure, as good as they are. But you always felt, didn't matter how many times Chelsea scored, that City had the ability to get back in the game when they've got a guy like Haaland up front. Even though he might not do a lot in a game at times, he'll always get on the end of things. And just to add on to what you said, Nick, what he scored with his backside or so, I put it down in the commentaries, he scored with his groin. I think that's the last touch. They were trying to claim it was off his arm, but I think it was his groin that it went in off. Um, it was a bit awkward, but look, you have to be there to to score it. So um, with with that game... They all count. Exactly. The question I want to ask is, firstly, um, is has, has Chelsea turned the corner? Off the back of the Spurs game, but more importantly, yesterday's performance, is this the moment where Chelsea's season changes for the better, Nick? I think so. I mean, uh, um these they have certainly been i think previously to the, this this week they've been playing better than the results suggested um and i, I think we, in a slightly odd way they can take more from this game than they did from an actual win against spurs because you know the, the obvious extreme circumstances of that game and you know they were they were playing against nine men and they sort of made Although they did win four one, they kind of made heavy weather of um, of scoring those goals against the, the the nine men of Spurs and that ludicrous high defensive line. But um, yeah, as you say, that the way that they um, to a point nullified some of City's threats. I thought Enzo Fernandez was really good in midfield as well. Um, Nicholas Jackson was. I mean, you know, he obviously he gets a bit of stick for missing chances, but um, his all round play. Is often quite good, and you know he got his goal yesterday. And again, his all-round play was was pretty good. So, yeah, it's, it sort of seems to be coming together. Probably a little bit slower than they they would have liked, and there were certainly certainly have been games uh, early on in the season. I'm thinking when they lost at home to Forest in particular, that that was kind of you you, you thought that this 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 kind of isn't happening. That's not it's not really kind of coming together. But the, the you know, these these this this last week and this game against City in particular um, will give them great heart, I think. Obviously, they've got really good results against the uh, the top sides in the division. If you look, so they started the season with a 1-1 draw against Liverpool. They should have beaten Arsenal. They had the game completely controlled. They were 2-0 up and then they ended up drawing 2-2. They've beaten Spurs 4-1 and um, they've had this result against City. So it does feel like they do seem to perhaps struggle against teams that, that sit a little bit deeper and don't offer space um, for, for for the wide players like uh, like uh, Sterling or even Mudrich to get to get in behind. Um, and you mentioned against you know they they lost at home to Forest. I know they they're your team, Nick. So obviously it's uh, it's uh, you know there's no there's no disgrace losing at home to Forest, obviously. <laughs> but uh, Chelsea will be hoping to win that kind of game. They lost at home to Brentford. They they've drawn away to Bournemouth. These are the kind of uh, fixtures and, and results that that would be worrying to to Chelsea fans because when we've seen them up against quote-unquote bigger teams they've actually performed pretty well this season next they've actually and they're on a interesting run of fixtures because they've had Arsenal Brentford Spurs City then after international break they've got Newcastle Brighton and then Manchester United so um, before Everton and, and Sheffield United so if they can keep this uh, form going against sides that offer them a bit more space and then find ways of breaking down teams that that sit a little bit deeper, then um, who knows if uh, my uh, pre-season prediction of them making a Champions League might come might come true. They're 10 points off, J- 
Champions League at the moment. They're still 10th after this this good result. So it's a good result, but there's still a lot of work to do, I think. And probably good. You mentioned a couple of the, couple of the upcoming fixtures there as well. Uh, Newcastle, obviously, loads of injuries. Uh, Brighton are slightly shonky form at the moment. So um, as they are coming good, it might be quite, that they've got these, these theoretically very good teams who, uh, for various reasons, are having a bit of a tricky time. So the fixture list might fall quite nicely for them in that respect. I'm sensing, Phil certainly anyway, because he predicted it in the, uh, at the start of the season that Chelsea were going to finish Champions League position. But like, and, and obviously he feels now that maybe that's going to happen, right? Nick, are you the same? I mean, I'm, I'm not, am I putting words in your mouth, Phil? You, you're opening your bit. mouth, you're looking at me with a little bit of, um, you know, disgust almost. <laughs> <laughs> I never look at you with disgust, sort of. But um, you, yeah, you did put words about a little bit because I don't think that after this result, a, a draw at home to Manchester City, however dramatic and entertaining it was, we can suddenly draw the conclusion that they're going to they're going to make top four. There are a lot of teams that are going to be in and around uh, that top four. It is as competitive as it's been in, in a long time. So no, Schwartz, I'm not saying they're definitely going to finish top four. Because Nick, right? There's, there's, there's Chelsea had nothing to lose. Okay, they've got home everything else. The performance home against Manchester City had nothing to lose that they were up against it nobody gave them much of a hope probably other than those people in that change room right so going into those games playing against the best team in the world you you know you you've you've kind of like the shackles are off a little bit and I think that's what we saw in that performance Chelsea's biggest problem is against the lesser teams yeah and uh, the the uh, I don't want to keep bringing up um, Forrest beating them at home although it was a, an excellent day um it, it, the, the, that's I, I suppose when you are when you're a team that's still coming together. Obviously, they had all, all these new signings that they had to kind of form into some kind of cohesive team of some description. Those sort of slightly counterintuitively, those games against the weaker teams, weaker teams, where as you said, Phil, they're going to play very deep and going to be very difficult to break down. When you are Still, when you are still a sort of collection of individuals rather than the team, I guess those are the kind of games that you're going to struggle in, and games where you have a little bit more space, then that that then those might be the games that you start to come together a little bit more. So now they are looking like more of a unit, more looking like less a, a collection of strangers. Um, then you know they might uh, they might actually get that top four spot as as I think Phil uh, absolutely said they they would do. Is that, that? I think I think that's right. Yeah, think, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that, that, that's definitely that's definitely what I said. Mark, can I ask you about the performance of uh, my guy Bobby Sanchez in goal for uh, uh, for Chelsea? Because he conceded four goals. I actually thought he did really well. He made some unbelievably good saves, and not just that, but I thought his distribution was considerably better, particularly in the first half um, than in than in previous games. Been a difficult week for him as well because he was left out of the Spain squad. David Raya's in the Spain squad, um, but. Um, Robert Sanchez isn't so for him to bounce back and produce a performance with some really really good saves albeit conceding four times as well I thought I thought he did really well I wonder what you thought no, no you're right I thought uh, the, the big save against Haaland was was massive I, I thought everyone thought that that's the back of the net that's a goal uh, Haaland's going to score I mean Haaland's movement was unbelievable Thiago Silva was in the right position it was going to win the ball interception but it was because of Haaland's physical ability, his athleticism, his strength, and his explosive turn of pace got onto the end of it. And Sanchez pulled off a, a remarkable save, um, even though it wasn't right in the corner, but it was hit with such venom. Uh, his reaction was outstanding. So, yeah, I, I agree. I think it was certainly from the game I've seen, 
um, Sanchez play. I thought it was his best game for Chelsea. I, I thought he was he was very very good. And yet he's got, he conceded four goals. Not a lot really he could could have done about it. Um, Edison was interesting on the other side of things. I, I thought he had a mixed game. I thought there was a couple of goals where. I would expect him to do a lot better. Um, the the Thiago Silva header, he got caught moving as he headed it. Um, and then obviously the the Nicholas Jackson goal. I, I thought he was poor in the, in, in the way he parried the ball straight back out. But it did start raining at that moment just before it. And I think his mind changed about catching it and parrying it. But it was a poor parry. Let's move on to, uh, I want to talk about Raheem Sterling particularly. Nick, what does Raheem Sterling have to do? There's got to be a fallout, right? There's, there's got to be something going on that we don't know about because how can he not be selected for this England side? When we look at what Gareth Southgate has done previously with players, players have been in the squad, haven't been performing well for their, their, their club, but have done well for the national team. So Gareth continuously picks them. Then obviously he's been left out. The excuse is other players are ahead of him and are doing well, but now he's, he's, he's coming back to his best form. What what do you how do you read into it? Yeah, I mean, I I, I mean, I, I if I was in charge of the England time side, I would pick him. But I guess he's been slightly unfortunate in that he's he's kind of while Southgate is very loyal to to kind of certain players, there is a point at which you drop out of the squad if you haven't been playing well or there are better alternatives. Um, the, the the cases of like Harry Maguire and Calvin Phillips are slightly different because there aren't that many decent alternatives in those positions. So Sterling kind of dropped out of the England squad at a point where he wasn't playing very well. Um, and now there are other players who are, you know, you could argue that they are in maybe not better form than Sterling, but of the forwards that are currently in the squad or any of the, the first choice forwards, certainly. Um, I'm not sure who who Southgate would kind of realistically drop from those. Like Ollie Watkins is in exceptional form. Obviously, you're not going to drop Harry Kane, Bukayo Saka. I suppose if you were going to pick on form, definitely, then Marcus Rashford might be the one to to kind of drop out. Um, but uh, I think Sterling. I, I I certainly would have picked him for for uh, this squad if only because. Um, because England are now qualified, obviously they want to get the, win the group and be one of the top seeds. But they have qualified, so you want to sort of look at maybe look at a few different players. You want to give someone like Rashford maybe, and certainly Bukayo Saka a rest. So someone like um, Sterling could come in and could, could play on you know, either the, the the left or the right of, of that attack. Um, but. Yeah, it is a strange one. Maybe there has been some kind of falling out. Whenever Sterling is asked about it, he's he's very kind of yeah. Well, you know, he doesn't really give a huge amount away, and Southgate doesn't give a huge amount away either. So um, yeah, it, it 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 is it is slightly difficult, but um, I think it's if not understandable, it's kind of fits with how Southgate kind of works these things. I guess what he was, what, what Southgate's done is um, what, what you're saying there, Nick, about um, bringing people in to have a little look at them. Now is what he's done with Cole Palmer, who's now been brought into the uh, um, into the squad to replace, uh, you know, the uh, the injured players who have, who have dropped out, uh, Madison Bellingham and, 
and uh, Callum Wilson. So Cole Palmer's getting a chance to to show him why, why isn't why isn't Raheem Sterling there on on form? I would have him ahead of. Uh, Marcus Rashford, but I guess he is loyal. Rashford scored in the last game, maybe wants to give him some continuity. But you have Raheem Sterling in the squad, don't you? I mean, even if he doesn't start, he can be the sort of electric substitute off the bench that can turn games and in tournament football. I think you need players like that. So yeah, I think it's a it's a little bit strange that that he's he's not there. But Cole Palmer, who was so so good uh, at, at Stamford Bridge, is uh, it's great to see him getting called up because he's um, he's a player who's obviously incredibly talented, but almost as much as his talent is the sort of personality and character that he shows at a very very young age and we've seen him scoring very important penalties for Chelsea uh, this season stepping up in big moments did it against Spurs did it against uh, Manchester City and just showing that he's got um I was going to say something that you know it's a family show so I'm not going to say but he's got a lot of personality cojones he's got cojones he's got um he's got he's got personality he's got he's got character yeah he has that, um, whereas a lot of footballers ha- obviously have confidence. Some some of them, you, you get the impression that they have, they've almost kind of talked themselves into having that confidence. That they, they might have had some doubts, but um, but they they have built up the, the confidence. With Cole Palmer, you kind of get the impression that it just hasn't occurred to him that he's anything other than brilliant, which you know might be um, slightly tricky if you you know had to deal with him in a, 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 on a day-to-day basis. But as a footballer, it's obviously brilliant. So yeah, he's he's exceptional. He's certainly got a swagger about him. And, and it's not a bad swagger. It's it's that just that, I think, a bit of a naive um, kind of belief in how good he is. But it's kind of not naive because he is that good. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of going around in circles on that one. The one that, the thing that, what, <laughs> What what surprised me is he brings in Rico Lewis, right? So he's played he's only played five Premier League games this season, so so that's telling for me that's telling that Raheem Sterling is out of fold. I, I don't see him having a chance back in. Rashford's form has been been very poor. I think bringing in Rico Lewis when there's an opportunity to bring someone like Sterling back into the fold, I think for me that's quite telling. If I if I were Raheem Sterling, I'd be seeing there going, there's nothing else I can do to get in this squad. There's going to have to be, what, we've had three players pull out, four players pull out in, in, in similar positions. I, I'm, I'm thinking oh, there's got to be 10 players going to be injured before I get a chance to play. And I, and back to what you said there, Phil, beforehand about Raheem Sterling being in the squad and surely he's a good player to bring in off the, off the bench, right? So these are the conversations we don't, we don't know, right? So that could easily have happened. Gareth could have had that conversation with him. He could have made a judgment call and thought he's not a player that I want to bring into the squad that I'm not going to be starting every week or every game. I don't think he might be thinking, I don't think this player is a player to have around the group when he's not a main player. So you, there's all these dynamics that you, you think have he, to could take. Be, he could be disruptive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not saying he is, but there, there's that, there's that call, right? So equally what's important is not only to have your best possible squad of players at a, at a tournament, but the dynamics, you, you're going to have to have a group of players that are, get on well enough. They don't have to all be best friends, but they have to be a good enough dynamics. And I'm not saying for one minute Raheem Sterling is disruptive, but maybe that has something to do with it as well because I can't, I can't think of any other reason because Raheem Sterling on, on form and experience deserves to be there for me 100%. Yeah, I, again, I, I don't want to sound like I'm kind of an enormous uh, Gareth Southgate apologist here, but... Again, I, I think the, the um, 
Yeah, okay. Well, I, I, I am a North Southgate apologist, but um, if, just looking at the, the kind of list of forwards that are in the, the squad, you've got Harry Kane, Marcus Rashford, Jack Grealish, Saka, uh, Foden, Callum Wilson, Ollie Watkins and Jared Bowen. You, the, the, of, of those, Jack Grealish hasn't been in the City team every week. And as we've said, kind of Marcus Rashford is, is out of form at a club level, certainly. But of the rest of them, I think you struggle to argue that any of them are um, in anything but really excellent form. So, I, I, again, I suppose the question is, if you're going to bring Sterling in, um, then who, do you, who are you kind of leaving out from that group? I think Rico Lewis coming in is partly because the, there have been a couple of injuries in defence, partly because uh, we kind of, I've mentioned Calvin Phillips earlier on, uh, that there aren't that there aren't that many kind of alternatives to in terms of a player who can do the sort of defensive midfield thing alongside Declan Rice. Um, so it's possibly a bit strange that if he's going to he was going to try Rico Lewis there, he wasn't in the squad in the first place, and he's just come in as a replacement. But I suspect it's more of a kind of positional thing, and you know who's what are the players he has in the squad rather than a sort of direct um, like comment on. You know, Rico Lewis's form against Raheem Sterling's form. As again, as you say, there might be some kind of other reason why Sterling isn't in the squad. But yeah, it, it's there are a lot of very good, mostly informed forwards in that that England squad. And you, you would, I don't know, it, it, is there is there anyone on that list that you you would kind of leave out in favour of of Sterling? I think Rashford is the obvious one. Um, but then I think we've spoken about Southgate being like a loyal uh, manager and, and sticking with uh, players. And, and like I said, I think um, he thinks that Rashford is salvageable, obviously, because, you know, we're only we're talking about a player who's on a bad run of form, but last season was absolutely flying. He, he did score in the last game against Italy as well. So maybe he wants to give him that continuity and build that confidence up as well. But of the list of forwards that you mentioned, Nick, I think Rashford is the is the only one uh, really that, that could be questioned. Otherwise, um, otherwise, yeah, you can you could understand why uh, why Gareth made those selections. I think it's an easy one as well. He could have left him out for this tournament uh, for the, these games, Marcus Rashford, and said to him, "Look, you know, get on the training ground, get a bit of rest first and foremost. Get on the training ground, find your form. You are still very much part of my squad moving forward, but you need to, you know, you need to try and." get your head down and, and get things right. And, uh, and I think that was a, that's a missed opportunity, I believe, in that regard. I mean, some, there is an there argument to say when the team environment that he's at isn't going well, you want to bring him into a better environment and hopefully that will kickstart uh, his club form. And I, and I understand that. I think with the national team, you've got to be picking players who are based on form. Sterling, you know, we've been over a, memory, a lot already, is that he's played there, done it, been at that level. Is in some of his best form. And and I, quickly I want to go on to is that I want to ask you quickly this last question, Nick, particularly. Is Gareth in danger of continuously picking younger players to try and continuously build for the future rather than picking the strongest team right now to try and win the tournament next year? Because I feel that over throughout his period of time, we talked about the golden generation. And it's always like, I feel like it's almost like they're building for something. They're always building. In each tournament, they're building for something else rather than that tournament and going in there going, right, we are now in the prime to win this tournament right now. Yeah, I, I suppose so. I suppose Sterling and I guess James Ward-Prowse, who isn't like ancient, but is not kind of, I don't know how old he is, 28, 29, something like that. Um they, they would be the the kind of two big examples of, of that where he he has maybe chosen someone younger, but I, I suppose he's kind of 
still picking Jordan Henderson in in the squad. Um, so, uh, the, and, and that's kind of for, for different reasons, obviously. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that, you, uh, again, going back to that kind of list of forwards, I'm not sure there's anyone in that list who is being picked necessarily on the basis of promise. I think they're all on, they're all in kind of pretty good form. Um, it is, it is, it is interesting if he is kind of picking players, um, on the basis of kind of promise and looking forward to the future, because, I mean, I don't have any kind of inside information on this, but I would be quite surprised if Southgate is still England manager after the the Euros. I suspect, it, you know, it sounded like he he needed he had to have a big big think and needed some persuasion to stay after the World Cup. So I would suspect, however England do in the tournament, that he will he will leave after the tournament. So um, yeah, I mean, maybe he maybe he's just kind of really bought into the kind of holistic idea of. Uh, you know, building England, this England squad for the future, for for when he's not there, that's his legacy or something like that. But yeah, it, it would seem a bit odd if he was kind of doing that. Um, I just want to go quickly back to the the, the Chelsea Man City game uh, and and talk about Man City just briefly. Um, is this is this a blip for Manchester City? Is are there are there cracks now showing? Because Man City, when was the last time they considered four goals in a game? When have they let goals slip? like they have, leads slip. Um, I mean, look, the bar is so high. Am I being a bit harsh on them because of how good they are and what they've done in the past? Um, or are they just are they just pulling us along to make sure that the league is really, really exciting longer throughout the season? It would be very nice of them, wouldn't it? Because you, you do kind of, every season you're sort of praying for a title race, but knowing at the back of your mind, well, you know, doesn't matter if Arsenal are top of the league in March or whatever it was last season. City are going to peel off twelve wins in a row and just win it at a counter anyway. Um, I'm glad you asked about conceding. Uh, when was the last time they conceded four goals? Because I did look at this look this up before the pod. Um, they the last time they conceded uh, four goals or more was uh, against Leicester in September 2020 when they lost five two. I have absolutely no... You would have thought that... And that was at City as well. You'd have thought that that would be the kind wow. of very memorable game. But it was... Um, but I have absolutely no memory of that game at all. Uh, I think it was... It, it must have been in the, in the sort of COVID season. So it's maybe my brain has just kind of wiped all those games um, away. Um, they lost uh, 4-3 to Liverpool in January 2018. 4-0 to Barcelona in 2016. 4-2 again to Leicester in December 2016. And... 4-0 to Everton in that same season. So they're the only times that City have considered four goals um, under Guardiola. So, yeah, it, it really doesn't happen a lot. In, in terms of kind of fragility this season, I mean, it, it, it's it's possible that you, you, kind of, you can kind of say, oh, you know, this was just a blip. But they have had a, a few blips recently. Um, you know, they obviously lost to, lost to Arsenal. Um, that they, they that was actually the first. I think this is that was the first game that they have not won after going ahead in. Um, so whether you can say they're kind of that points to uh, you know that that the, the game yesterday points to a sort of wider fragility. I'm not sure, but these, as I said, these these isolated blips do kind of uh, at some point they're going to have to add up to something. So yeah, I mean. It, I, not, not that I am, um, you know, partial in any way, and I don't, I, I, or I, I have anything against Manchester City, 
but it would be nice if they someone properly challenged them again this season rather than the the, the kind of inevitable cantering to um, the title with weeks to spare. Look, we're only 12 games in, right? But the, 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 the league table is very tight. So Man City, Liverpool, Arsenal, uh, Spurs, Villa. I mean, there's three points that separates those five teams. Has anything changed? Do we still feel, feel that man, it's Man City's to lose? Um, bearing in mind Arsenal, Tottenham in particular, their injury lists are pretty horrendous. Newcastle just on the outside have got even probably the, one of the worst injury lists. Um, and Manchester United, you just don't know what you're going to get. Yeah, I think, listen, uh, three points separating the top five is fantastic from a, from a neutral's perspective. And uh, I think Optus Sport viewers are very, very lucky because it looks like we're going to have, uh, if if not a title race, but it's going to be closer. There's going to be more teams involved until longer. I think uh, the the experience from last season obviously has to serve Arsenal in, in, in good stead. I think they're going to have to be stronger than they were uh, last season, having been in that position. Uh, it's going to have to have had some kind of positive impact. And they, you know, beating Manchester City will, um, will give them belief that they can, they can keep going a little bit longer. I don't think anyone saw Liverpool as potential title challenges maybe a month ago, but now they're there a point behind uh, Manchester City and, 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 and in, 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 in the conversation, at least, uh, without doubt. And Spurs, what a damaging result this weekend it was. Because you win that game and you are top uh, level with, 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 with Manchester City. Um, in fact, no, you're top, aren't you? You're top. Um, clear point of Manchester City. But conceding those two goals in injury time, it's showing a fragility that I think has uh, become uh, generally uh, associated uh, with Spurs. And I don't think anyone thought that Ange Postacoglu was going to get rid of that fragility. Just the way he plays is obviously going to leave Spurs exposed uh, a little bit. Um, and the injuries and the players not available for this game, if they'd managed to get through that game without your first two-choice uh, centre-backs, without your left-back, without the creative force in the in the heart of the park in Madison, if they'd gotten through that and won, I think it would have been a really, really massive step for Spurs, not least because they would have been top, but also emotionally, psychologically. These are the kind of games that you that you have to win if you're going to grind out a, a league title a challenge, at least, if not, if not actually winning the title. So for them to lose, I'm not going to write them off completely. I am a Spurs fan. I want them to keep challenging. But it does feel like it was a pretty momentous result, um, despite it not being definitive, despite there only being 12 games. But in terms of mentality, in terms of what we can expect from this Spurs team, losing that game in injury time uh, on a weekend when the win would have been so momentous, it's, um, it's, it's really, really damaging. Nick, does that show Spurs' fragility in terms of um, their squad depth? Having James Madison out, uh, Mickey van der Ven, they, they're both out until the new. Um, Mickey van der Ven probably be even out longer. It seemed like a horrendous uh, hamstring injury. James Madison's ankle wasn't great either. Richarlison is out, but hasn't been great form either. Solomon was always an exciting player. So does that affect Spurs more than anyone else? Is it just that season too soon for them to be up there or thereabouts? We, we all think they've overperformed thus far, right? Yeah, definitely. And I think this was kind of, this was always the thing that people knew might happen or knew, no, not, not even might, knew was going to happen at some point. Um, because, you know, that, that that first team, with the exception of, sort of who played on the sort of left left hand forward side 
it it was more or less the same team every week. You knew that that at some point that was going to um, that, that that was going to change. That they would get injuries. It's just happened that they, you know, it it all came crumbling down quite quite rapidly. I mean, that must have been a. I mean, just just that sort of two minutes where both Van der Ven and Madison went off against Chelsea. You could kind of see the sort of see the the faces of Tottenham fans all over the world crumbling um but yeah and I think it's probably in the middle of defense that is the most I mean Madison is obviously huge but they 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 do have other midfielders who obviously aren't as good and don't do the same job but in central defense um Romero is obviously only suspended so he'll be back quite soon but beyond Van der Ven you have Eric Dyer, who I, I think pro- probably would have left in the summer if you know if um, if someone if there had been a, a kind of acceptable offer in for him. Um, Ashley Phillips is obviously I don't think he's even played a first team game yet. He's very young. Um, ben Davis is kind of you know solid pro, but probably you probably don't want him playing in, as a centre back in in a, a four man defence. So if they're kind of left with Romero and you know bits of Spitting twigs to kind of patch it, patch things up next to him. Um, then you, you you kind of worry for the next few months, and I can see the fear in Phil's eyes right now because uh, uh, I'm looking at the uh, fixture list. Uh, yeah. It's Villa, City away, West Ham, and Newcastle. They're the next four Oof. games. Uh, three three of the four are at home, but but still, it's and then obviously Forest away uh, mid mid December is going to be a big, big challenge as well. So. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a time that I think you know Nick, Nick Nick said we all kind of knew it was going to come, and this is when we learn a bit more about um, Ange Postecoglou's um, Tottenham. Um, it's all great when things are going your way. You're scoring last minute winners. You're digging deep. You're showing personality, and everybody's enjoying uh, watching you. And now, when you've had these two losses in a row, when you've got these injuries, suspensions, this is when we learn a little bit more. So let's see. I'll ask you both now: uh, Who's the best placed team to challenge Manchester City? You start, Phil. Oh, why are you making me say this? I mean, it's probably <laughs> Arsenal, isn't it? Um, just because I would say the um, the uh, the experience from last season, um, the 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 team, it's a very good team. They've got a very uh, good manager who will have learned from last season as well. And they're only a point behind. Uh, they've beaten City as well this season. So, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say Arsenal, but with a, with a heavy heart. Uh, I think Liverpool actually. Um, I, I haven't. It, I, I confess I don't have an enormous amount of logic to to back it up because they they they, are, they have their fragilities. Robertson's out for a little while. They you know they did a good enough job. Uh, well, they, they did they did as good a job as you could reasonably expect anyone in replacing an entire midfield in in one summer. Um, but there's there still are kind of little bits of fragility there, but. I don't know. They, they've got. They've just got so many options up front. Um, Sobersly has obviously been superb. Um, uh, so, and I'm not. I don't know. I don't. I don't know what it is about Arsenal. They're obviously really good, but there's, there's something that I think that there might be a kind of implosion of, of some description at some point. Um, Again. So uh, yeah, the manager, of... like on top of the manager, another implosion other than the manager. Well, I mean. He's 
I don't know. He's he's. I mean, my God, he, I, I, he must be an absolute nightmare to work with. He's just so, just so intense and like all over the place all the time. It just because oh, mate, give it, just give it a rest. Just let me let me sleep, man. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't know. As I said, not a huge amount of uh, logic to back it up because I think probably. Like objectively, Arsenal are a better team, but uh, for something, I've got to just got a little feeling that Liverpool are um, uh, a slightly better place to challenge City. I'm not so sure that Arsenal are a better team than Liverpool. I'm I'm going to go with Liverpool. I like I like what you're saying. I think there's more logic than you believe, Nick. I, I think Liverpool, man for man, are a better team than 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 Arsenal. Problem with Arsenal is Odegaard. There's an unknown as to the severity of his injury. Came back in the League Cup against West Ham, played the last 10, 15 minutes, then disappeared again. So as in injured, um, seems to be niggling and going ongoing for some time. Um, yeah, it, it, and, and obviously Thomas Partey is a continuous issue for them. I mean, even though they've performed without him, Gabriel Jesus, I think, is also a big player for them. If, if he's, especially his work rate, not that he's going to get a lot of end product, but I think he creates a lot of space. His understanding and working relationship with Odegaard is also very, very good. But I like Liverpool going forward, mid, midfield, slobber slide, McAllister, outstanding. Yes, you could say there are question marks at the back, absolutely, to, defensively, but they're going to outscore you. They, they, they are ruthless and lethal going forward. So I, I, I'm going to go with, I think Liverpool are probably the best place team to, to challenge Manchester City. But let's hope it's more. Let's hope it's, let's hope it's Arsenal and Liverpool and Spurs and the rest. Let's hope they're all there and thereabouts come the end of the season, but we'll have to wait and see. Let's move on to the WSL. Um, the Women's Super League was in action again this weekend. So let's get all the latest from Narelle and Ash. Yeah, a lot happening in the WSL, as always. But Ash, the one thing we have to talk about is Manchester City suffering back-to-back defeats now, which usually wouldn't be a, a massive deal. But I think the team who they lost to is making this a bit of a nightmare for them. They went down 1-0 to Brighton, and all the stats favoured Manchester City, but couldn't find that, I guess, clinical finish. And it's costing them in terms of the table, but also you heard whispers that their manager is maybe coming under fire a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's crazy to think after, you know, an unbeaten start, two losses, one of them against Arsenal, you know, that he's already starting to be under pressure. But I think maybe that sort of flows on from last year. Like he was under a lot of pressure, Gareth Taylor, last year. And, you know, he got a one-year extension. He comes into this season. I think Manchester City have high hopes for their coaches. But, you know, he's not the first coach to have you know, question marks starting to be raised about in this year. The WSL is so close, isn't it? It is. And you just touched on there, the other manager who I guess has come under scrutiny a little bit is Carla Ward, the Aston Villa manager. Obviously, they had a really terrible start to the season, but they picked up their first points over the weekend. Um, but she's still in the job. Um, but you think maybe Manchester City might be a little bit more cutthroat than Aston Villa. I'm not sure. Potentially, yeah. We'll see what, you know, is to come. You know, Carla Ward, I think, this year, uh, this week, interestingly, went to the playing group or the leaders in the playing group and asked whether she still had their support. Like there was a lot of public um, people saying, you know, she's the best person for the job still. And but it's interesting that she went to the the playing group to check. You know, that's a, I think that's a very new age sort of coaching tactic that we probably wouldn't have seen in the past. And you know, not sure if Gareth Taylor will be doing that for Man City, but you know. He's got some tough fixtures still coming up ahead of him. So I kind of wonder whether the pressure will only keep mounting. And maybe he doesn't have the support of the dressing room and the fact that Carla was asking, because if they said no, you'd think she'd probably just leave. Yeah. Where I feel like 
if Gareth Taylor did that and Manchester City turned around and said, no, we don't support you, he wouldn't leave? Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't know if he'd even ever ask the question, you know. If you're, you're, if you're afraid of the answer, you probably don't want to ask the question. <laughs> but, you know, the other thing, not only does the club have high expectations at Manchester City, the playing group would as well. Like, you go to a club like Man City to win things and they didn't make Champions League last year. They want to rectify it this season. And, you know, they've got to, you know, keep pace with the top of the table. And they'll be eyeing up Manchester United to do it. The Manchester Derby, there is a lot riding on it this week, guys. At a club like Manchester City, I would have thought that you're always under continuous pressure to perform. And Gareth Taylor obviously will be under some sort of pressure. But to lose his job, I don't think just yet. I think, look, Manchester City are a very, very good side. The biggest disappointment was the loss um, now at home to Brighton. They should have won the game. I mean, Lauren Hemp, Chloe Kelly, Bunny and Shaw, big, big chances. Mary Fowler as well. They should have won the game and won the game comfortably. Brighton took their chance. And obviously it was just one of those games that didn't fall uh, for Manchester City off the back of losing away to Arsenal, which I don't think is is, is a shame. And no no two, no team has ever lost two games in the WSL and gone and won, won the title. I think this season's very different. I think there's anyone, any number of clubs that can win the WSL this season. And I think it'll potentially be with fewer points this season than ever before. And it's going to be a lot tighter. So very much looking forward to that. La Liga, Phil, Girona are top. They beat your boys. What a game, by the way. You were there. I mean, obviously you were feeling well and you decided to go to a game for a change. There was no excuses. The weather looked great as well. That stadium, by the way, looks outstanding. Look, like as in terms of a football stadium, football environment, but they were lucky, Girona, weren't they? Uh, Girona beat Raya Vallecano by two goals to one. Um, it was a fantastic game. It was a nice sunny afternoon. You'll have to come with me, Mark, one day to, to. Uh, to Vallecas to, to to experience the uh, pretty unique atmosphere. Obviously, there's uh, only three stands at this stadium behind the uh, uh, goal at one of the ends. It's a couple of blocks of flats who have got uh, really good uh, views of the uh, of the pitch. Um, the game itself was a really, really open, exciting game. As I've been telling uh, listeners to the Optosport Football Podcast, all season basically hashtag always watch Girona uh, because they provide genuine entertainment this was the fifth time that they'd come back uh, from trailing in a game to go on and win they were uh, one nil down pretty early on but they're such a good unit they are such a good attacking unit and unit is the word because they don't necessarily have any standouts individual uh, players that you think oh yeah he is the one that makes them tick they spent seven and a half million euros on Ukrainian striker Artem Dovbik uh, this summer. He's their record signing, seven and a half million euros. And he's proved to be a, a magnificent uh, signing, seven goals, four assists, uh, scored again uh, against Rio and is a, a really, really important player to them. But yeah, it's, 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 the, it's the unit that the, uh, the manager, Michel, has, has, has constructed and they're two points clear now. They're two points clear of Real Madrid. They actually, um, they were five points clear temporarily because Real Madrid didn't play until the evening. So they were putting the pressure on Real Madrid to have to, have to win. Uh, it's an extraordinary uh, story. And I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but this is only their fourth season in La Liga. Only their fourth season. They'd only ever played in La Liga um, for the first time in 2017. That was the first time they'd been promoted to La Liga. This is not a historic Spanish football club. This is a club from... A town which is 100,000 the population. Traditionally, it's more of a basketball town. It's not necessarily got this huge footballing uh, tradition. 
they do have the support of the city group which of course we have mentioned on, on, on numerous occasions of the podcast but that support isn't particularly egregious I mean they've got two players on loan from the city group Savio and Jan Kuto they're two really good players but it's not like there's a massive influx of players from the city group it's not like they've thrown a ridiculous amount of money at this team as I said Artem Dovbik seven and a half million euros record signing it's not it's not um something that that feels like it's unfair the advantage that they've been given being associated with the city group and at the moment it's an extraordinary story a third of the season gone they're two points clear. I don't think they're going to win the league. Still, I'm saying that now. I don't think they're going to win the league. But I do think, genuinely, they can make top four. Very, very seriously. I was. Uh, you, you obviously have mentioned the, the City Football Poop thing uh, a lot. I just wondered how they are. Are they being viewed in Spain as this kind of great romantic story uh, that, you know, top of the league? Or is a little bit of the edge taken off because of the City thing? So I'll uh, I'll tell you who's reminding everyone of the uh, City Group, uh, and that's uh, Real Madrid fans are reminding <laughs> everyone that they are associated with the uh, City Group, not least because there is this sort of socio-political element of Madrid against Catalonia and Girona being the sort of bastion of uh, Catalan separatism. Without going down that road, there is a little bit of a uh, little bit of that Real Madrid against. Girona, Madrid against Catalonia. But otherwise, I think people are getting really excited. And the L word is being mentioned a lot here, Leicester. Leicester, 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 Leicester. People are, or should I say, to give it its correct Spanish pronunciation, Leicester. Um, people <laughs> keep talking about it. Um, and people are getting excited because this doesn't generally happen in Spanish football. Uh, the, the top three are the top three. Uh, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Atletico Madrid in various different orders. But for the last 20 years or so, that's been the top three. So um, to have someone here after 13 games, two points clear at the top, and if for it to be a, a small team is, um, is really quite exciting. I don't think you can actually... I mean, I know Real Madrid are using that tactic and saying that they're part of the City group, but they clearly haven't got the advantages. Like, they, 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 I mean, they're seven, what, seven and a bit million for their, 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 their most expensive player. If, if the City group were really into it and they were really funding them, they'd be spending a hell of a lot more money than, than seven, seven odd million euros for a player. So I think that's a bit unfair. And Real Madrid, obviously, the usual tactics of trying to justify why maybe they're second and two points behind them uh, with all the money they've got and all the money they've spent on players. Um, Real Madrid, it was convincing score on the score sheet and there were elements of the game that were very convincing certainly after a moment where they took a 1-0 lead Real Madrid and then Valencia Valencia took took over didn't they I mean they had some massive massive chances to to go to they should have been 2-0 up had it not been for Real Madrid's uh well was he third goalkeeper um, he was absolutely outstanding coming in, uh, replacing Kepo, who's out, I think it was a groin injury or something like that. But Lunin, the Ukrainian goalkeeper, he was brilliant, wasn't he, Phil? It was. Um, Real Madrid beating Valencia uh, 5-1. Um, and as you mentioned, Valencia had some chances when it was 1-0. Real Madrid scored very early on uh, through Danny Carvajal after uh, a couple of minutes. But then Valencia really should have scored. I mean, Hugo Duro, their centre forward, had a couple of unbelievably good chances, which necessitated decent saves from from Andre Lunin and then Real Madrid went on and it was actually really important for them for Vinicius to score a couple of goals Rodrigo to score a couple of goals they'd been questioned a lot about their lack of uh, scoring while Jude Bellingham was getting all the headlines and we were talking about Jude Bellingham week in week out on the on the podcast his unbelievable scoring record he's injured now missed the last couple of games um and they stepped up which is what 
uh, Real Madrid needed them to do. We know that Vinicius and Rodrigo are two extraordinarily talented players, but their numbers in terms of goal scoring this season uh, had been down, considerably down on on, on previous seasons. Uh, the uh, headlines and the spotlight was on Jude Bellingham. With him out, they managed to uh, they managed to score, and that's a really really good news for uh, for Real Madrid because Jude's going to be out maybe for uh, a couple more games. We'll see. You obviously mentioned Bellingham there. Is it, kind of, is it being viewed as significant that they managed to win this game without Bellingham? Is, was, there a, was there any kind of idea that they were relying too much on him? Oh, very much so. So uh, last week, they'd been held at home to a goalless draw um, uh, by Raya Vallecano, my team, obviously. Uh, mention that again. And um, the headline on marker was, no Bellingham, no party. Uh, <laughs> Bellingham had played in this game, but he had picked up a shoulder injury and was playing with an injury and wasn't at his best. And the suggestion was that they were really dependent on Jude Bellingham to shine, to make things happen, and also to score really important goals. And his goals have directly contributed to lots of points for Real Madrid this season. Without his goals, they would be treading water in mid-table. Um, so there had been this notion of uh, uh, Bellingham dependencia is the uh, word that uh, sp- the Spanish media had, uh, had dreamed up. But Obviously, uh, Rodrigo and Vinicius banishing notions of that for the time being. It'll come back. It's the Spanish press. They're pretty wild. So I'm sure it'll come back if Vinicius and Rodrigo stop scoring. But at the moment, it's been banished for the time being. Talk about wild. It was pretty wild in the weekend for for La Liga, full stop. I mean, Barcelona, um, horrendous first 45 minutes. Got booed off at halftime. Down 1-0 to Alaves. I mean, how close were they (laughs) to a massive upset? So they should have been probably 4-0 down at halftime at home to uh, Alaves, uh, who are one of the, I don't want to say poorest teams in division, let's say the more modest teams uh, in the division. Um, but they created four really good... I mean, three, they scored early on after 18 seconds. Alaves scored after 18 seconds and Barcelona took the kickoff. Uh, and it's it's ridiculous that that can happen. Uh, Ilkay Gundogan was robbed in possession and Alaves ended up scoring, booed off at halftime. They turned things around in the second half in terms of getting the result because a defeat would have been massively, massively damaging. But this win isn't, it's not much better for them. Yeah, okay, they got the points and okay, they're only two points uh, behind Real Madrid, fine. But in terms of, and they say this in Spanish a lot, in terms of the sensations around the team, the sensations are not good at all. Genuinely, they were hanging on at home to Alaves um, at the weekend. And afterwards, Xavi came out and... He blamed the press. He blamed the press. He said the negative press is putting lots of pressure on the players and they could sense it, particularly in the first half. And everyone, everyone who's involved in the press is thinking, well, it's not our fault, is it? It's not our fault. You can't get the team to play how you want them to play. And it has been a run for Barcelona where for the last two months, they've been genuinely playing badly. They've been winning some games, but they've been genuinely playing badly. They won 5-0 back-to-back against Betis and Antwerp in September. Since then, they narrowly beaten Celta Vigo 3-2. They had to come back from uh, 2-0 down. They drew 2-2 with Mallorca, a 1-0 win over Sevilla with a Sergio Ramos goal late on, a 1-0 win in Porto when they really should have lost, 2-2 against Granada, narrow 1-0 win against Athletic Bilbao, 2-1 against Shakhtar, not great. The best performance was probably in the Clasico when they lost 2-1 to Real Madrid. Then they were really poor against Real Sociedad last weekend and won 1-0 with an injury time goal. They were abysmal away to Shakhtar Donetsk and lost 1-0. And now this really, 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 really poor showing at home to Alaves. So it's been a run of two months now where they've not been playing. They've been picking up some wins and they're still there. 
which is the important thing for Barcelona. But in terms of feeling, in terms of sensations, in terms of uh, confidence around the squad, it's a really difficult time for Barcelona and Xavi. Do, do you think he's under pressure? Like, I mean, how would that be perceived, certainly from the hierarchy in Barcelona, in terms of blaming everything else? Like, whenever a manager starts blaming the press or blaming someone else, you're starting to say, hang on a second, are you running out of ideas? Are you running out of ideas as to how to fix this? I think he's definitely under um, under pressure. And um, I'm not sure how um, I'm not sure how he gets out of it. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult one for Xavi because he's quite a belligerent character. Um, he's, he's, if he feels like he's being uh, slighted, he will come out on the, uh, on the, on the front foot. And he's not brilliant at um, self-criticism. Um, so he will tend to talk about excuses for the uh, performances rather than um, trying to explain why they're not playing particularly well. And it does feel like he is uh, under pressure. And they, um, they, they lost away to Shakhtar Donetsk in the Champions League. And the Champions League was the big thing for Barcelona this season because they've gone out in the group stages in the last two years. So they absolutely had to get out of the group. They probably still will. But now they're under a, a level of pressure where they absolutely didn't want to be. They must beat Porto now at home when they play after the uh, uh, after the international break. And if they somehow if they somehow contrive to not not go through the group again, I think they're going through the group. They're going through obviously. But even if they finish second, the pressure will be on, and it's mounting, it's mounting, and it's a huge pressure cooker. Barcelona, like Real Madrid, the level of scrutiny is probably unlike any other jobs in the world because yeah there's pressure on the Manchester United manager the Liverpool manager Arsenal manager you do not have two 60 page uh, daily newspapers dedicated to analysis slash criticism of you anywhere else apart from Real Madrid and Barcelona it is very very difficult uh, and also the level of the fan base the demanding nature of them they have to win they have to play well Barcelona um, and they're not at the moment they're not how much of a um, a factor in the sort of pressure or otherwise on him is the fact that it's Xavi? If this was just kind of you know any other manager, what, what difference would that would that make? If it, if any difference at all? So I think it does give him a little bit of margin, actually, the fact that it's Xavi that he might have been afforded uh, time that other managers might not have been because he is such a such a legend. But I think it's worth remembering that. This is Xavi's first real job. With all due respect to the Qatari league, where he was for five years, it is not the same. So he's kind of learning on the job at the moment. And last year, they were champions. They were champions. And he picked them up in a really, really uh, poor situation. And he took them to being champions within about um, 18 months. So he, 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 he did well there. But that championship was really, really fine margins. They won 11 matches, 1-0 a scoreline which he deemed to be unacceptable at the start of his tenure, and now he's become a little bit more uh, pragmatic. And the margins were really fine. They could easily have lost a number of those games, and Ter Stegen was making saves um, to keep them in matches and to win matches. And, and this season, it's not happening. And um, they're, uh, they're, they're conceding far too many goals uh, compared to last season. And Xavi does have a bit of margin because he is genuinely a legendary figure at this club. But... No, at the end of the day, it's like Real Madrid, you know, with Zidane. Zidane was a legendary figure and, and, he, and he left and he was under pressure and he was getting stories leaked to the press about him. And it's the same with Xavi. These, these monster clubs, they don't, have, they don't have too much loyalty. They don't. They don't. So um, we'll see how much uh, uh, Xavi uh, is able to take and whether he can turn things around because at the moment he is genuinely under pressure. 
um, does he survive if they don't win the La Liga? Um, does he keep his, his job? It's, it's, it feels ridiculous to say because he did uh, win the championship last season. I think a lot will depend on what they do in Europe as well. And if there's a considerable uh, improvement, then maybe finishing second and fighting until the end and really giving it a good go, maybe. But the thing is, if you, if you don't win anything at Real Madrid and Barcelona, you've got a good chance of being sacked. Even if, if you end up trophyless, there's a good chance you've been sacked. Even if you're Xavi or Zidane, even if you won the championship last season, it doesn't matter. You need to win something and something important every single season. So if he doesn't win La Liga and they don't go really deep in the Champions League, his position will be seriously, seriously questioned. Well, let's talk about the Seville derby, or let's call it, I'm going to call it the Isco Rakitic derby because, I mean, it was brilliant, wasn't it? I mean, Isco... Scores after 50 seconds. Oh, sorry, should have scored after 50 seconds. He had a header from six yards out. I mean, it's obviously not his forte, but come on. I mean, Phil, you would have even scored from there. I probably would have scored from there, Mark. Yeah, I almost certainly would have scored from there. I probably wouldn't have been in that position. Uh, no. But had I been in that position, um, I would have scored from there. Listen, in terms of um, in terms of a fixture, the Seville derby is it should be on every football fan's bucket list because think of Spain. Think of the... Um, stereotypes you think of Spain, sun, uh, heat, uh, flamenco, sangria, or whitewashed houses. That's Seville. What you're thinking about is Seville. And it is the essence of everything that this city is about condensed into a derby. It is a, a sizzling saucepan of a derby. In terms of intensity, um, in terms of actual quality, this one wasn't brilliant. Uh, there was a lot of intensity, a lot of fouls, a lot of challenges flying in. There wasn't huge amounts of quality apart from Isco, who was magnificent. And the, the story arc around Isco is really quite extraordinary. He was finished. He was genuinely finished. He didn't play football for six months at the start of this year. He left Seville. He didn't have a team. He was going to go to Union Berlin. That fell through. He didn't have a team for six months. He stepped away from football, got himself right physically, got himself right mentally, moved to Betis. He's been man of the match in eight of the 13 games that he's played for Betis this season. It's really quite extraordinary. Um, and he was a hell of a player, Isco, in his time at Real Madrid. He started two Champions League finals. Uh, he came on and was a really important substitute in another. This was a massive player. And for whatever reason, lack of form, fitness was a big issue for him. And I, I was working at Real Madrid TV uh, for, uh, for a few years while he was there. And we saw the training sessions and he was not in good shape at all. But he is now, and mentally he's right. And when he's clicking on all cylinders, it's um, it's a joy to watch. And he brought the only sort of real, real level of quality in this game. And his, some of his touches were magnificent. You mentioned Rakitic; he scored an absolute screamer from thirty yards to level things up. But Sevilla are in trouble. They're a, they're a, they're a they're a poor team. Uh, they didn't deserve to get anything out of this game. Betis were a lot better, and they were led by the uh, the Renaissance man Isco. Nick, I think Phil uh, summed it up pretty well there. I mean, I've been to Seville a number of times. I've watched Betis play. I've watched uh, Sevilla play. I've played against Sevilla, actually. Atmosphere is always good, but I definitely want to go and watch a Seville derby. What about you? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was on my list of potential uh, games even before Phil gave it the big sell there. So uh, now even more so. Well, that's all we've got time for today. I want to thank Phil, as always, and Nick, of course, being for the first time on the show. Great having you guys on. Uh, now that we head into the international break, so remember, you can watch every European qualifier live on Optusport, as well as the Women's Super League next weekend. See you next time. 
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.